Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, music historian Elijah Wald. Look, basically, I think that the value of history is understanding how other people in other times and other places have thought, because I think understanding how other people think is a valuable exercise. I I really do. I mean, I think that that's, you know, the huge problem. Many of the huge problems of the world today are caused by the fact that we can all get on Facebook and talk only with people we agree with. I think understanding how other people think is worth the trouble, I think. And, and goddammit, I think it's interesting. Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we have conversations with artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher under Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests on the Fun to Know podcast pages on Facebook and at Twitter, and we'll be delighted if you'll take a minute to leave a review on the show on iTunes or just send a note with your thoughts through Facebook. Thanks again for listening. A quick announcement before today's show. My film appreciation classes at Fleischer Arts Memorial in South Philly continue. Starting September 9th, it's French Directors in the Post-New Wave where over five consecutive Mondays we'll be looking at intriguing later works from the French New Wave directors Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, Claude Chabral, Agnes Varda, and Eric Romer. It's a highly entertaining group of films, and all the screenings we've hosted in the last few years have led to fascinating conversations afterwards. To find out how to enroll, go to Fleischer.org. Now on to today's show with music historian Elijah Wald. I was just hanging out in my South Philadelphia neighborhood when I happened to get introduced to Elijah, a music historian who has written over a dozen books, mainly on the subject of roots music, but also on subjects as diverse as hitchhiking, the cultural phenomenon known as the dozens, and the genetics industry. Elijah won a Grammy for his liner notes in 2002, had a book he co-authored with Dave Van Ronk adapted for a film, as well as making the scene as a guitarist rooted in the folk blues tradition. It's just one of Elijah's books that we focused on on this episode, the 2009 publication How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, an Alternative History of American Popular Music from the Oxford University Press. The Beatles don't actually appear until near the book's climax. The book's main focus is as a corrective to past musical tomes that distort 20th century history by focusing on a canon of artistically important artists at the expense of minimizing many of the commercially dominant artists of their day. It's a rich and challenging book, impeccably researched as well as being highly readable. We'll dive into the book's many ideas, along with discussing Guy Lombardo, Paul Whiteman and Ricky Nelson, The Stones, The Beatles, Dylan and the Three Degrees, and examining how gender biases cloud the story of 20th century music. You can find out more about Elijah at ElijahWald.com. Now let's head into that conversation with a bit of Elijah's guitar playing leading us in. Take it away. Here at the Fun to Know uh, Kitchen Table Studios with a gentleman named Elijah Wald, who uh, one of the foremost musicologists, I would say. Uh, he's shaking his head. Grammy winner, uh, publisher of uh, a wide array of books on a, a wide array of musical subjects besides your, your early start writing about the, the, the gene world. Yeah, which was not really my world. <laughs> Um, I, I was only shaking my head because I have no training in musicology. I'm a music historian. Music historian, okay. I thought I'd mention as well, I thought it was I was very amused when uh, me and Elijah met at a, a local party in the neighborhood. And not, not unusual for me to go to a party and somebody say, oh, you're both into music, you two should talk to each other. And Elijah sort of uh, humbly uh, represented himself as a blues guitarist. And uh, my first thought was like, oh, I bet you do a great sweet home Chicago. But as I talked more and more throughout the night, and, and me being sort of, you know, 
full of my own ideas about you know everything I know about music. The more I talked to Elijah, I realized that Elijah knew a lot about music uh, as well. And then I uh, was surprised yeah. to find out that you uh, have had a long career uh, chronicling uh, the history of music. I, you know, I think I probably described myself as a guitarist. I didn't. I would never describe myself as a blues guitarist. Okay. If, if you ask me. After that, what you play, I I might say my grounding was in blues. But, uh-huh. I mean, I've always, always, you know, really, I came out of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. Ah, oh, And I expanded into blues and then expanded partly thanks to Dave Van Ronk, who also got typed as a blues guitarist. But if you ask Dave who his main influences were as a singer, um, he would, within the first three or four, have hit Bing Crosby. So you know he he he's a great portion of this. Uh, would you like to swing, swing on, on a star? star? But I mean, he loved Crosby. I mean, he he really pushed me to listen to Crosby, which I'd never done. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, I mean, musicians tend not to do these little boxes. It's the fans who are a blues fan or this or the other. You know, the the musicians. I bet you there are damn few blues musicians who if you go home and look at their records you find they're mostly blues records yeah yeah and there's few musicians that you know even you know when i talk to often jazz musicians or whatever you know they, they don't necessarily warm up to being described even as jazz musicians or improvising musicians or no, well, everybody wants to be considered for whatever gig might be out there exactly maybe. Yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, yeah. most work, working musicians, I mean, if they're people who are trying to make their living at it, all the boxes are is ways you get typed and then you don't get called for gigs that you would like to get called for. Yeah. Oh, amazing array of books you've done. You, you did a, a biography on Josh White. You, you did the biography of uh, Dave Van Ronk, the mayor of McDougal Street. Well, that's actually Dave's book in Dave's voice. I had to write it because he died on me partway through when we were working on it. So yeah. I ended up writing it, but it's in his voice. It is his memoir. That's not a biography. Okay, okay. And then that was uh, the basis. Of, uh, it of was the Coen Brothers of the movie, Coen yeah, Brothers Inside Lou and Davis. I mean, it... They used stuff from it, and God bless them, they paid in particular Dave's widow who needed the money, and me some. Yeah. So, I mean, they treated us well. But, I mean, the, the figure in the movie is not Dave and was never meant to be. The music is largely Dave's stuff. Even even the, the uh, album they, cover is sort of... Yeah, the, and they borrowed some, some vignettes from the book. But, I mean, they, it was a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, and uh, I guess the, the book that when we when we talked, uh, book that you said I should read for us to talk about is is a book that you released back in two thousand nine, uh, that was published back in two thousand nine. How the Beatles destroyed rock and roll with that uh, provocative uh, title, the alternative history of American popular music. And uh, I was uh, pleased and excited to see uh, on the back of the book a blurb from uh, Tom Waits. I couldn't put it down. It nailed me to the wall. Not bad for a grand sweeping in-depth exploration of American music with not one mention of myself. Walt's book is suave, soulful, ebullient, and will blow out your speakers. Tom Waits. Nice, nice blurb to get on the back of the book. Yeah, no, that was funny. I, I wrote him because he did a blurb for the Van Ronk book, so I had an email of his office. And I queried whether he might, because I was just trying to think, you know, they, they, you know, publishers want a big name. And I was trying to think of a big name who might possibly be interested in a book that ran from Paul Whiteman and the 1920s up to the present. And I thought, okay, wait, maybe. Yeah. And so I, I queried them. And the next thing is my phone rings and it's waits. And, and for a while, I was getting calls from him every couple of weeks about the book. <laughs> and then he wrote the blurb and I never heard from him again and that's that that was my brief period of hearing from tom waits it was really cool um it's a it's a, a fascinating book and and it's it's really gotten a lot of attention as a, as a book that that uh, upends a lot of assumptions that people have about music history one of the quotes in it is that uh history uh history doesn't repeat itself but historians repeat historians yeah and no i mean really the exercise in this book was that what we normally mean when we talk about popular music, or particularly what, what critics, what writers, what historians, when they say popular music, what they mean is not classical, not jazz. Um, but there's no requirement that it be popular. 
you know, so if you're talking about popular music of the 1970s, you can get the Ramones, who, you know, had eight fans, (laughs) or the Velvet Underground in the mid-60s who had eight fans. And, I mean, I share the tastes of a lot of the people who, who write those books, but I just felt like it would be interesting to actually write a history of the music that was popular, because... I understand why people are less attracted by that a lot of times, um, sometimes for stupid reasons, sometimes for good reasons. But much as you may prefer the Velvet Underground to what was on the radio in 1965, Lou Reed knew exactly what was on the radio in 1965. Same goes for Dylan, same goes for the Beatles. I mean, the Rolling Stones, Doug Somm and the Sir Douglas Quintet. I mean, you may like the more obscure thing, but they were conscious of the top 10. And if you want to understand what they were doing, you need to understand what was popular and why. And so that was the exercise of this book, was just to go from about 1890 when recording starts happening, which is what we mean by popular music is records now. Yeah. And basically just go from there up to the moment where records really take over, which is in the late 60s. Yeah. Well, it was, it was challenging for me as, a, as a, somebody who's you know, devoted a lot of his life obsessing over music and the history of music and the, the history of the last century that, uh, you know, I've listened to, you know, tons of records from, you know, mainly the 20s on and uh, watched a lot of film from, the, you know, the, the, the silent era on. And through all that you know, you collect, you piece together your idea of what this century was about artistically, what the people were about, what was driving the people. But what your book really opens up, and it's really because you did such incredible research on tracking all this stuff down, is that, you know, recordings were just a, you know, a piece and not even an important piece for yeah. many decades of what people were really listening to through jukeboxes and sheet music and radio, which is, you couldn't be more yeah, ephemeral. No, that's, that was really interesting, and that's one I have to keep that's a battle I have to keep refighting, including with very, very astute, serious people I respect very highly. We have the records, so we can live with the records, so we start thinking of each of these periods in terms of music as what we have on record. And it takes a while to get away from that. I mean, you know, you can be, if you're reading the entertainment news in 1925 or 1930, it takes a while before you sort of notice that the biggest names are people who never recorded and who you've never heard of if you're a record person, and that people who you think of as hugely important are never mentioned. And your first thought, you know, they're mentioning Guy Lombardo. They're not, or, or let's Guy Lombardo. We of course did make lots of records. I'm not, I'm not coming up with a name instantly. Uh, 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 yeah, sure. Let's come up with a name. Waring, Fred Waring. They're go. talking Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians. They're not talking about Louis Armstrong. And your first thought is, well, sure, racism, and you know that's part of it. God knows, but the fact is. Louis Armstrong in that period was making his living on the road with a big band playing essentially Fred Waring arrangements and then was going into the studio to record essentially cult music because he couldn't go head-to-head with Fred Waring. That was racism. So he was doing this other thing. But if you went to his dances, he was playing Fred Waring. Um, because that was what was popular. That was the mainstream. Can you give us a sense of, of, of what Fred Waring was playing? What, what, what was Tripe. This? I mean, no, I mean, what Fred Waring was playing, well, first of all... Fred, Did he have a novelty hit? Fred I Waring feel like... was a show band. Okay. I mean, Fred Waring, the whole point of a Fred Waring show was it was always entertaining. There was always something happening. I mean, you know, guys could juggle their instruments. They would do all kinds of stuff. He also had a huge radio popularity. You know, they had singers. They all sang. So it was the Fred Waring Glee Club as well as the big band. 
it was all-round entertainment. And that's one of the things that it's important to remember, is that any band that was playing concerts, which Waring did do, Whiteman did do, Armstrong did not do. He was a dance band. Um, Ellington was a show band. Ellington was playing at the Cotton Club, which means he played behind all the dancers. He played behind the comedians. He played behind whatever. Didn't the band play on a sort of fake front so, porch at the Cotton Club as well? There was or? some of that. But, yeah. I mean, the big thing, you know, when you're thinking about what people are playing, it's where they're playing. And a seated audience wanted entertainment. You needed comedians. You needed dancers. You might have jugglers. Who knows? You might have a magician. Um, a band that was just playing dances they needed to play dance rhythms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mood in to go is show music. That's not dance music. Take yeah, the A train a, is dance music. There's a real utilitarian quality to music. Yeah. That it was, you know, something that was made to get people dancing. So, I mean, Armstrong is the great example of this because Armstrong, the most famous Armstrong records forever and ever are the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens he recorded between 1925 and 1929. And that band never performed, not once. That band was entirely a studio group. He made, I don't know, 100 records or more than that over a period of four years. During those four years, he was working every afternoon in the Vendôme Theater Orchestra, where his specialty was a soprano aria from Caballere Rusticana as a trumpet feature. We don't have that. And at night with Doc Cook's dance orchestra, who made, I believe, 178, maybe two. And who he was playing with seven nights a week for years. So, I mean, that's sort of the perfect example for me of this, that in the period Louis Armstrong was making his greatest records, they bore no relation to what you would have seen in those same (laughs) years if you'd gone out and seen Louis Armstrong. One of the main figures that, that comes up in the book, you just mentioned, I think, by last name only, Whiteman, Paul Whiteman. Paul Whiteman. And, uh, the unfortunately named Paul Whiteman. <laughs> no, I mean, his name the, became a joke. Yeah, the metaphor you know, is the, right there for everybody. The too, aptly yeah. named Paul Whiteman <laughs> as, as an example of the unswinging sorts of squares who got to be known as kings of jazz yeah. and prevented black musicians from getting their due. But you're saying he's a, he was a much more multi-dimensional force than that. Well, I mean, yeah, that that goes without saying. I yeah. mean, Paul Whiteman defined what most people meant by jazz. I mean, when F. Scott Fitzgerald talks about the jazz age, what he means is the age of Paul Whiteman. <laughs> I mean, when when F. Scott Fitzgerald actually mentions music, that's what he's talking about. He's yeah. not talking about what we now call jazz. Yeah. But, you know, Paul Whiteman introduced Bing Crosby. He introduced uh, Mildred Bailey, who was the first female singer with a dance orchestra. You know, you then get Crosby, you get Rhapsody in Blue, which is the first concert jazz piece to make any impact. And it keeps going on right up till Philadelphia with Paul Whiteman's TV Teen Club, which evolved into American Bandstand. I mean, he simply was a dominant force in the mainstream of popular music, which you can say he was a dominant force for making it white and boring. What what do you think? Because he's somebody who is mentioned in high esteem from a lot of you know, more appreciated musicians today like Ellington. Ellington. And, and, Ellington uh, comes out, Ellington is 100% out of Whiteman. What do you think he saw in, El, in, in Whiteman? What do you think he, he took from Whiteman? Orchestration. Absolutely. I mean, what makes Ellington different from a bunch of New Orleans guys getting together and blowing? And I don't, I'm making no value judgment here. Personally, I like New Orleans guys getting together and blowing. Yeah, yeah. But what makes Ellington different from that is the Whiteman strain, is the idea that you orchestrate this, what do you want to call it? Um, let's say you, you do the scene behind 
that in front of which somebody can still get out and play these amazing improvisations, but you've created this incredible scene around them. And that's the Whiteman model. And, and Ellington was very, I mean, Ellington not only was open about that in 1929 when he started, right through into the 1960s, if you ask him his influences, he always named Whiteman. And, and I mean, yeah. it, it, it's just true. I mean, it's not complicated. Sure. That's what he sure. was doing. Yeah. So much of my, my interest in, mu in, in music has been following the inspirations of the musicians I love. I always would read the interviews and read what they were yeah. talking about. And uh, yeah, the, the Whiteman one, it, it's, it's those sort of influences you often find with people that, that seem somewhat baffling because it seems like what you love about those musicians is not what's you know super present in, in their influence. Well, I mean, Ellington and Whiteman, you can hear it better than, say, um, Louis Armstrong and Guy Lombardo. Who, yeah. I mean, Armstrong always listed Lombardos as his favorite band. And that it's... You can hear it if you really, I mean, if anyone wants to go online, I have an essay, um, Louis, what, Louis Loves Lombardo, um, about that relationship. And um, he was, the way he put saxophones together, I think, was one of the things no, that... No, Louis liked it because it was pretty. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really not more complicated than that. Okay. I, I thought I he mean, had a saxophone line Lombardo. That that's was true. Unusual, but I mean, yeah. the, but what appealed to Louis Armstrong about Guy Lombardo was it was pretty and you could hear the melody. And Armstrong was coming out of that King Oliver world where they blew on blues. And what separates out Armstrong is that he steps out of that and is playing stuff like Stardust. And the, he likes Stardust because he likes Lombardo. What he does with it bears no relation to Lombardo and is brilliant and changes the history of American music. But that's the taste yeah. that takes him from King Oliver to Stardust. And they also liked each other. I mean, they also just got along well with one another. Um, but, I mean, that was an example of sort of the thinking that got me into doing the How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll was, I don't like Lombardo. I, I find him boring and sappy. You know, I have all the problems with Lombardo everybody else has. <laughs> But given the fact that Louis Armstrong consistently named Lombardo as his favorite band through his entire life, if we're going to agree that Louis Armstrong was the single most important figure in 20th century American music, which he tends to get named that way, can we really just keep ignoring what he has said over the course of his entire life was his favorite band? Or do we need at some point to say, well, you know, what does he mean by that? And start looking into it. And that's essentially the, it, what this whole book was about was, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, yeah, you can prefer the Velvet Underground to Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to do the history, I mean, the joke, my joke for a while in there was, if we did political history like we do music history, we'd write the history of the 20th century and leave out Hitler and the Nazis because we don't like their work. <laughs> you know, it's that's yeah, fine as yeah. criticism, but it's not history. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and uh, the book is, is laid out really beautifully where, where decade by decade you sort of uh, go from, you know, the turn of the, the 20th century to to look at, at what were the real musical forces in each decade and 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 it, so many of them are invisible today too well because for example in every period from the teens certainly through the early 60s the main force is what were teenage girls dancing to and that tends to be invisible yeah um because even if you're looking at films of dancing you're very rarely looking at films of average dancing, and average dancing is who's buying the records, <laughs> or who's not, or who's hiring the bands, or who's listening to the radio, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and so a lot of the exercise was just trying to figure out, you know, what are typical kids dancing to, and I don't mean necessarily typical white kids, yeah, or typical kids in Omaha. I'm interested in what kids in Omaha are dancing to, but. The fact is it was pretty generalized yeah. and also across racial lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, the what got recorded is much more 
segregated along racial lines. You know, black bands very rarely got to record waltzes. But boy, did they play a lot of them. Yeah. It's just the recording companies would go, we've got lots of waltz. You know, we've got Wayne King, the waltz king, to do the waltzes. When we get Fletcher Henderson, we want something hotter. Yeah, yeah, and they, you're leaving out a whole dimension of uh, Fletcher Henderson's career. Which Fletcher and Henderson art. was, cr- I mean, this drove Fletcher Henderson crazy because he was trying to get the big time prom gigs, which was where the real money was, and that demanded that you be able to play waltzes and tangos, and he could. Yeah, and he was very concerned that his records were going to mislead people into thinking that he couldn't play the pretty music that the girls wanted on prom night. Yeah. Which, again, I'm, I'm saying with no trace of contempt, that's, that was the job of a dance band, was to play the pretty music that the girls wanted on prom night. Well, that's, that's an interesting theme that does run through the book, and uh, I, I'm glad that you really got to it, because it, it gets into a lot of uh, my interest in the sort of gendered uh, listening yeah. of music, and you talk about that uh, you know girls bought all the records, and yet it's it's uh, you know squirrely uh, men that sort of uh, wrote all these histories, and of course they you know leave out and, and minimize uh, the the female perspective in, in, in all sorts of ways. Yeah, no, I mean my smart aleck remark is the history of popular music is what teenage girls like to dance to, and the history has been written by men who had no dates in high school and therefore hate popular music. (laughs) Um, But it's really kind of true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the extent to which people, including intelligent people, um, most of the male people, but there are some female people on the list by now, if you mention the acts the girls liked, will instantly get this look on their face of, oh, God, not that stuff. Because that's how you define yourself as a serious music listener. Because, you know, you, in the period I went to high school, you know, the, the reality of my high school years was Casey and the Sunshine Band. Yeah, yeah. But try to find a serious piece of writing on Casey and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> Great band. Among all the serious writing on the This horn's Say always the perfectly in tune with Casey. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, they're sharp records. You know, I, they were fun records. I, at the time, was contemptuous of them. I remember, and, and I uh, do have an, an embrace of dance music uh, and uh, some of the different forms that sort of break away from this sort of raucous point of view. But I, I was remembering in eighth grade walking with a girl. This would be in 1978, I think. And she had her autograph book. And inside it had a little poll of the person who had the autograph book. And it said, your favorite music. And she had written rock and roll there. And then it was crossed out. And she wrote in disco. And I remember as like a rock and roll boy being really disappointed, like, oh, man, is there something that could be done to get this girl away from disco? Yeah, no, probably not. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, for me, one of the moments that I didn't understand, I understood it instantly, but yeah, in fact, it was, it was, let's say it's one of those moments that changed your life. Um, It was in high school and I was talking with a black girl who I, was in high school with and mentioned the name Bob Dylan. We're talking now 1975 maybe. Yeah. And as it, you know, I mentioned Bob Dylan's name as if, you know, of course we all know that. And she said, "Who's that?" And I said, "You've never heard of Bob Dylan." And she heard the tone of my voice and said, "Have you ever heard of the 3 degrees?" <laughs> and my immediate reaction at the time was, "Oh, come on." Bob Dylan is more famous than The Three Degrees. But the fact is, no, he wasn't. Not in 1975. No, no. So The Three Degrees were on the charts everywhere. The Three Degrees were huge in 1975. And I didn't have the faintest idea who they were. And that, I think, is paradigmatic. I mean, all, you know, I live in a world of boys who it would never occur to them to put those two names side by side. I mean, are you, you kidding? Yeah. But it, it ruffled people's feathers when Dylan mentioned how much he respected Smokey Robinson. Years he ago. didn't, actually. That's not true. Is that a misquote? Is that, um, a- that was Smokey Robinson's um, publicity people, the, the saying that Smokey Robinson is America's greatest poet right now. Um, Smokey Robinson's people came up with that. Oh, really? And, and checked it with Dylan's people. And they said, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. But that was a shocking, it was a shocking statement at the but, time. But I mean, Dylan it, did like, I mean, it's not that Dylan didn't like popular music. No, Dylan, no. I mean, you know, the fun one in his, uh, in, in his memoir is when he talks about hearing Ricky Nelson on the radio and thinking, oh yeah, you know, he really spoke to, you know, I, I felt like I felt, you know, could feel what he was feeling and he was, Ricky Nelson. <laughs> but a lot of people felt that way about Ricky Nelson. I mean, I, he... That's a perfect example of somebody who ends up in my book. Fairly seriously, I don't spend that much time on him, but the time I spend pretty seriously on him, because again, unlike all the people who were on the radio, which we remember from the records, Ricky Nelson was on television every week and the most popular show in the United States. And so Ricky Nelson was reaching... You know, Ricky Nelson was on television a hell of a lot more than Elvis was. Yeah, yeah. And Elvis, too, was a, a sort of a, uh, a an outrageous, mysterious figure where Ricky, because we sort of saw his home life on television all the time, seemed much more embraceable and, well, and closer. I mean, you absolutely. Know? By the time Ricky first picks up a guitar, everybody has already grown up with him as their brother. Yeah. And he picks up a guitar, and he's not very good, just like your brother when he picks up a guitar. But it's charming. Yeah, yeah. And that's and there it was. Yeah. And people loved that. And as I say, Dylan included. I mean, because in a sense, it's a very folky. What later became thought of as punk, but at the time was thought of as folky. Just somebody who picks up a guitar and starts singing and playing music with his friends. Yeah, something about the, the, the sort of straightforward kind of flatness of his voice or something, too. Right, I mean, it was, it was, like I say, it's what we thought of as folk then and then became thought of as punk. It was the unprofessional aesthetic, what they now call DIY. It was just somebody picking up a guitar and singing songs he likes. Yeah. And it was very appealing on that level. And I mean, if you watch the show, it's still appealing and he gets good goddamn musicians. He has James Burton playing guitar and god damn it james burton moved into the the guest house behind ozzy and harriet's house and was jamming with ricky all night i mean it was all real you know and he hears the collins kids and sees them on television your listeners only the nerdiest ones will know the collins kids oh, know them well they were larry and Lori. larry and Lori collins they were a hot shot teen rockabilly duo only i think larry was still preteen. And Ricky got a crush on her and found somebody who went to high school with her and got her phone number and called her up. And pretty soon he was dating her both in real life and on the show. <laughs> Great gig being Ricky's girlfriend at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was, but I'm just saying, you know, it, it was immensely appealing yeah, at, for its unprofessionalness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a real, an element that doesn't really hit popular music until later when I think of. Uh, the 20s and 30s sort of stars. I mean, there's an incredibly high-level professionalism, and there's something that really separates them from... No, I mean, that's what rock and roll brings in, and that's why... I mean, again, this is one of the things that I didn't understand until I was working on this book. The reason, you know, people tend to talk about the older generation hating rock and roll because they were squares and the kids were hip. And then I'm reading this story. I'm going to get the names wrong. It's Harry James and Buddy Rich, maybe, who were on the Dorsey television show when Elvis Presley comes on. And they're watching from the sidelines. And one of them signals the other, making with, with his hands a square symbol. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, their reaction to Elvis was, oh, my God, that's the squarest stuff you've ever heard. Unsophisticated. It wasn't, not even unsophisticated. It was square. It yeah. was the sort of dumb country stuff that people played in Omaha and that people in New York were hip enough not to be interested in. I mean, they were reacting exactly like they were whatever the hippest thing is in New York this year, and he was Garth Brooks. <laughs> I, I mean, that's exactly how they heard it. Yeah, yeah. They heard it as this inept crap that people out in the middle of the country who don't know any better like. And what they didn't understand was what we then got more explicitly in punk, which was the appeal of ineptness. And again, I'm not saying that with contempt. I'm not saying that with acclaim. 
it's an, it's an aesthetic to actually like stuff because it is not polished. Maybe we can swing into sort of the the emergence of rock and roll, yeah. uh, coming out of the uh, the '40s and into the '50s, and and uh, again, it's sort of a, as the sort of a, a assumption that sort of comes with hearing the records and knowing a little bit of the history. The idea, well, Elvis came, you know, within an year, he was signed to RCA Records. He recorded the number one record. Rock is one. Rock is dominated, and rock is now you know the official music of the fifties or whatever. And you know you watch Happy Days; it gives you that sense that the, you know the jukebox is just playing sort of rock and roll tunes all the time. But this is not the reality of what was really happening in the fifties. Well, first of all, Happy Days and American Graffiti is early sixties. It's not fifties. Oh yeah, that's right. Is something first of all worth remembering. <laughs> um, Where were you in sixty-two? Was the tagline of American and, Graffiti? And yeah. And there are a couple of things. The first thing is um, music, the history of music and the history of music categories are two completely separate things. And we very often miss that. And that was part of the exercise of how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll was just to say, let's just forget the terms jazz and rock and talk about what music people are playing. Because... We tend to lump stuff in categories, and what that what that involves is willfully not listening to the music that's being made. I mean, if you go see Elvis in King Creole, what you're seeing is New Orleans jazz bands playing blues with Elvis singing blues on top of New Orleans jazz bands. I mean, there's nothing rock and roll about it. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's not a joke. That's just what the music sure. is. Yeah. But, of course, it was part of the rock and roll era. Yeah. And, you know, you get this over and over again. I mean, Yesterday is my favorite example. I mean, Yesterday by the Beatles. It's a string quartet. Yeah. String octet, I guess. Is it string? No, it's a string quartet. It's, yeah. it's Eleanor Rigby that's a string it's octet. octet yeah. You know, it's an acoustic string quartet. There's nothing rock about it. But all I'm saying is... The, I, we file it as rock because the people who like rock are listening to that, yeah. not because of anything sonic. Yeah, it. yeah. I mean, I and think the people that enjoyed Perry Como in that era would have enjoyed the and Beatles did yesterday, enjoy yesterday as well. I yeah. mean, that's why yesterday, I, I promise you, to this day, yesterday is, is the most valuable copyright in the Beatles catalog. I mean, it's like, you know, Bob Dylan. Is the man, you know, in copyright terms, wrote Blowing in the Wind and might as well have stopped. Um, Songwriter for Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But so the reason that I'm going in that digression is rock and roll as music, you know, you can go back to the 40s, you can go back from there to the 30s, you know, uh, what was the first rock and roll record is one of these stupid exercises. Yeah, it, yeah. Whatever you want to see. You, you, know, you do, uh, talk a lot about one of my favorites. However you enjoy. Louis Jordan and the Timpani yeah, Five. Exactly. Um, who are the model for uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. And another thing I learned doing this book is they're the model to the extent that their records are produced by the guy who had produced Louis Jordan for Decca and who played Bill Haley and the Comets' Timpani Five records and said, <laughs> Milt, do this. Milt Gabler, I think. Milt Gabler. Yeah. Yeah, and said, do this. I mean, it's not... Yeah. I, I'm not just saying they were based on that. They were based <laughs> the on that. The same guy was in the room both times, yeah. Telling them, do this. <laughs> yeah. I know um, Chuck Berry, also a big Louis Jordan fan. Well, Chuck yeah. Berry, huge Louis Jordan fan. And the moment it becomes rock and roll is, you know, rock and roll was invented as a way of removing race from the category of rhythm and blues. Rhythm and blues had been invented as a term for black music so that you could stop calling the chart the race chart or the Harlem hit yeah, parade. Race records, yeah. So they changed it to rhythm and blues, but what rhythm and blues meant, just like it means right now, R&B, yeah. is black music. Yeah. It was a racial 
typing, not a musical uh, typing. Shocking, shocking too. The majority of and record stores still today have a R&B or a soul section and a rock section. Right, R&B is, is black music. Yeah. And what happened was one guy, Alan Freed, in Cleveland? Yeah. It was Ohio. Yeah, Cleveland. Um, started doing concerts and he wanted white teenagers to come down and so he stopped calling them rhythm and blues concerts not because the white teenagers wouldn't come down but because the white teenagers' parents might not let the white teenagers come down if you say this is a black concert. So he invented the term rock and roll. Which had been sort of lingering out there. Oh, yeah, I mean, you can find lots of uses. Ella Fitzgerald, maybe. Yeah, I I have in the book, yeah, a quote from. an Ella Fitzgerald song of a, with rock and roll from 1938, 39, somewhere in there. But anyway, um, but Alan Freed grabs the term simply as a name for black music that is not, the name is not attached to that. And what he meant was black music. Yeah. I mean, Alan Freed, when he first heard Elvis Presley, his position was, it's another white hillbilly trying to sound black and we've got real black artists. We don't need this shit. He changed over because the cash register told him to. But what he was trying to do was sell black music to white kids, not sell white singers who sounded black to white kids. That's the next step (laughs) in that particular commercial move. Yeah. And to have white people cover black records. But Alan Freed's idea was... You sell black records to white kids. Yeah. And as TV is on the rise, it's important to really have white faces behind as these records TV as well. makes it harder. And But, I mean, up to when Motown starts, if you look at the first few Motown albums, there are no pictures of the artists. Because, again, he's trying to sell to white kids. And more important, the kids may know the artists are black, but they're going to come home with a record album, and their parents can't tell by looking at it that yeah. the records are black. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. So, I mean, it's, I'm not at all, you know, it's, it, it was sort of an interesting project because, I mean, to a great extent, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll is a history of white music because we're talking about the pop mainstream in a racist country. Yeah. Um, so it is the history that does Paul Whiteman and Guy Lombardo rather than Louis Armstrong and uh, Duke Ellington, but very much not ignoring why it's doing that <laughs> you know this the story of race is there and rather than ignoring it i'm trying to figure out what role it's playing yeah and and where i don't know if we want to roll to sort of to, to, to the ending uh, sort of ideas but what what is 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 very interesting and and, and sort of a, a challenging thought that goes against the grain a little bit is the idea that uh, in the 60s and the civil rights movement, finally there was going to be this breakthrough and, and, and uh, your race wasn't going to matter as much. And yet the Beatles and the and birth on of, the contrary. Uh, yep. of rock actually sort of pushes rock, you know, almost the, the change from rock and roll to just calling it rock. And suddenly it's an art music that's just for listening, has nothing to do with dancing and tends to squeeze almost every single black artist out of being part of this moment. The, almost every single artist, meaning literally everyone but Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Who, who is the only major black figure in rock. And and in a way, really stands out as... I don't um, hear anybody saying that there's a guitar player definitively better than, than Hendrix. In some ways, he's the king of the genre, but still... Right, uh, but he's coming from London with a British band. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's yeah. one of the interesting things about Hendrix. He arrives as part of the British invasion... And that is so explicitly true that he arrives from London and makes his debut on the U.S. rock scene at the Monterey Pop Festival because Paul McCartney has insisted that they bring him on and they're so nervous about it that they fly in Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones to introduce him. Because nobody's heard of this guy. Not a single person is recognizing him from the Isley Brothers band. And he's coming from, you know, his reputation has been made in swinging (laughs) London. And he comes to Monterey Pop. Yes, he is a black American. But he comes to Monterey Pop as the hottest new thing from London. No, it's an interesting moment. I mean, part of what's happening there is simply the shift in technology. And that's... 
what happens in the 60s is at the beginning of the 60s, if you said you wanted to go out dancing, that sentence would include the assumption that there was a band on stage. Yeah. There was no such thing in 1960 as going out dancing if there was not a band. The sound amplification really wasn't where it would be in another decade. Well, sound or so. amplification was fine. I mean, the band might just be four guys all plugged into amps. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not like you still needed to be hearing a big band. The you know you often by 1960 would just it was just four or five guys mm-hmm. with electric guitars. I mean, that was if you were a teenager, that was quite often the band. But goddamn it, there was a band. The idea that, you know, I mean, you danced at home to records, you might dance at the soda shop in the afternoon to records, you might even dance at a high school party, sock hop, with records. But if you went out dancing, there was a band. And by 1970, 10 years later, going dancing tended to mean you were going out to listen to dance to records. And you didn't go dancing to places with a band. You went to hear a band. Yeah. And those, that division, that switch is huge. Because, and one of the things it means in terms of the racial politics is you can go dancing to black music without any black people in the room. And therefore, the world of 1960 where if you were white kids going dancing to black music, you needed a white band that played black music. By 1970, you can go dancing to black music and you're dancing to Motown records. And then when you go hear a band, it's a white rock and roll band. And you can maintain segregation without the white people having to play black music. And that's just a technological shift, but it sure as hell was real. I mean, by the time I was in high school, if you went out to hear a band in my world, they were white and so was everybody in the room. And if you went dancing, sometimes everyone was white, sometimes the group was mixed, but the records were black except Casey and the Sunshine Band, and we thought he was black. (laughs) Yeah. Is there, it's something that I don't know if it does come up in the book, but uh, my sense is there's been a real decline in dancing in the last 50 years. Is that something that is, that you'd marked as, is the, uh, the sort of social world of dancing and listening to music also something that sort of, sort of slid away? I don't know if it's true. Yeah. I mean, DJs are drawing bigger crowds than almost any band these days. Yeah. Not, I'm not in those crowds. But, I mean, Skrillex is drawing more people than, uh, you know, Arcade Fire ain't even close to Skrillex for how many people show up. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think about, you know, dance shows on TV and these new dances cropping up. Like, that, that, that part of culture seems somehow gone. Well, that's a completely different thing. Dancing and dances, I, I think it's true that kids today don't do dances but that's different from going dancing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I caught the tail end of that. You uh-huh. know, when I was in high school, if you went to a party, you know, among the requirements for a good party were a couple of girls who watched Soul Train every week who could show you what th- this week's dances were. And this week's dances were not the same as last week's dances. That has changed. I don't think the teenagers now... When they go to a party, they need to know this week's dances. That had been around since the teens, you know, yeah. the latest dance. Yeah. That's gone. Now people just go dancing. Yeah, I guess I... I but I, I don't think they necessarily do less dancing. I think that it just, it's a different, it's it culturally a little different. But yeah. I think girls still go dancing. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad I caught the, the tail end of that. I was... Uh, going to the YMCA dances every week. And that was a mixed crowd. And that's the first place I heard rap music and all that stuff. And it was also, there was a couple dances. I remember that was the, the bump was still sort of working its way in. And the, the freak, which went along with the, the chic song, the freak was a, a specific dance step that I remember sort of arriving, but, but I don't remember much past that really. Yeah. I mean, there may still be some of that, but I'm, if so, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. You, you talk about the music turning from being a dancing music to being a listening music in, in that 
in that time as well, sort of popular music. And well, the, I mean, uh, both of those things always exist. The other split that happens in the 60s is couples dancing disappears, mm-hmm. which means that the girls can all be in one room dancing and the boys can all be in another room smoking dope or <laughs> talking about motorcycles or whatever they're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, and the music, the gendered music goes along with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that sense, there really is a move away from dancing, um, but it's entirely male. I mean, it's not like fewer women are dancing. It's just the guys don't have to be part of that anymore. And as soon as they don't have to be part of that, most of them peel off. Now I'm talking about white. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is, that's raced as much as it's gendered. Maybe this is just theorizing, but how come women are so much more attracted to dance than men, do you think? I don't have an answer to that. It's a good, it's a damn good question. And it, it varies, you know, it's certainly, you know, for example, in Africa, opposite is true. Yeah. I mean, in Africa, if only one gender is dancing, it's, it's men. Depends on whether, on societies where dance is for display, in which situation it tends to be men. If we're talking social dancing rather than performance. Yeah. I mean, Men show off at parties by dancing in some societies. Um, Africa, Hungary is that way. Um, They may hire a woman to dance, but that's essentially like hiring a stripper. Um, Social dancing in our society, couples dancing, why that's more a female thing than a male thing, I would, you know, if I... Off the top of my head, I'm going to say the same reason that women like romantic movies and men like films with car chases and and explosions. Um, The couples dancing goes along with, you know, it's the mushy stuff. Why girls like the mushy stuff? The sociobiologists will say it's the nesting thing. But, you know, it may just be that they're not allowed to drive the fast cars. And, you know, we may be moving into the era where they have their... AR-15s and, you know, I'm sorry it's still all, only the boys. We, you know, that I'm, I'm not going there. I'm just not going there. That's fine. Most of the girls like to dance. Most of the girls like to dance. Most of the girls like to dance. Lawless some of the boys do. What do you think of the post Beatles world there where where, you know, this sort of break off happens and it seems like there isn't a conversation anymore between black and white, uh, you know, sounds and and, and musicians and the charts the same way? My, you know, honestly, I think that when this racial split happens where black people are playing dance music and white people aren't anymore, I think it's bad for everybody. I mean, I think forcing both groups to play both kinds of music was always a good idea. Um, I think in general, forcing artists to please audiences (laughs) is a good idea. Um, I understand the limitations of that idea. But, you know, given the two extreme positions... Position one, the artist has to work to please his or her audience. Position two, the artist should just work from inspiration to please him or herself. They're both extreme positions. On the whole, going over the history of art, I think pleasing the audience produces better art. It doesn't get you Van Gogh. I mean, there are artists it doesn't get you. You know, it gets you Michelangelo. It doesn't get you Van Gogh. We can go through the list. In some ways, it forces you to... to... But it keeps a certain... There is a standard other than masturbation. Yeah. Well, so it forces you to to take in these other ideas that you wouldn't be taking in. And it almost gives you a wider breadth of ideas to pull from almost. I'm going to stick with there's a standard other than okay. masturbation. And, and <laughs> No, seriously. I mean, there's nothing wrong with just pleasing yourself. That's fine if all you're trying to do is please yourself. But what rather quickly happens is that people start feeling like other people should appreciate them for doing that. Yeah. And that's a hard one. 
I mean, there were very, very, very great artists who just pleased themselves. I'm not, again, this isn't an aesthetic judgment. But I'm a pop music historian. The reason I'm a pop music historian is I like pop music. Not always the mainstream schlock. I like, mostly me, I like the middle ground. I mean, mostly, you know, I prefer whatever, you know, I prefer the Rolling Stones to Simon and Garfunkel and Barbara Streisand. Um, I just do. But both of those are pop music and God knows I prefer I'm not sure about it let's just say even the pop music I don't like much I'd rather than an evening of John Cageman <laughs> most, a, most days not every day sometimes I want John there, Cage minimalism there's a certain switch in the, for me in the character of the 20th century's entertainment where the, the earlier part of the century what was really about the audience and reaching out to the audience and I'm going to grab you from the lapels and entertain you with my talent where there's a switch that's for me somewhat symbolized maybe by like Brando and, and Elvis Presley where it's, it's a little more like I'm going to go so far inside myself it's going to make a spectacle and I'm going to make you come to me and watch mm, me. Nobody ever wanted to please an audience more than Elvis Presley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brando is a somewhat different situation but you know you always had both. It's, this isn't, I mean you always had art music. And what shifts is some stuff that we label pop music being in the art music category. And that's just mislabeling. Yeah. I mean, Dave Van Ronk, who was my teacher in all of this, used to say, you know, Joni Mitchell is writing Schubert Leader for our time. And the fact that they are filing what she's doing as folk or rock or jazz is just because it's misfiled. She's writing middle-class art song. There's nothing wrong with middle-class art song. It's a long, honorable tradition. She knows it very well. And that's, that's the tradition she's in. And, and that's fine. But it's just, it, it's misfiled. I, I and, you know, we're still living in the world of Katy Perry and, and who's this year's. But, I mean, I've written, I, I got very into Katy Perry for a while which is why that name leaps to mind. But, you know, it can be Janelle Monet. It can be, you know... Keisha. There's no... Sh- you know, we're still living in a world of people who put on a goddamn good show. Yeah. They yeah. don't just sit in their room and, and write poetic this and that. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, I feel like the Beatles did popular music to such a sort of transcendent state that you could see where it would be accepted as sort of art in that way. Uh, even even their sort of straight, straightforward songcraft, I felt was you know really at such a high Again, level. I'm that... going to say this is about misfiling. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the break between classical, you know, between art music and popular music in the mid to late 19th century. Beethoven was the elite taste. Strauss was pop music. These days, this is all Viennese orchestral music, and we put it all kind of... We don't say that Strauss was as great as Beethoven, but they're in the same part of the record store. But they were the same divide. I mean, Beethoven was, you know, the stuff that the, the smart kids liked while they sneered at the stuff the stupid kids were dancing to. Uh, I'm serious. Yeah, I mean, sure. you read novels of that period, that's how people talk about Beethoven, yeah. that he's difficult. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there was the fun, popular music, and when Jenny Lind or whoever the classical soprano of the day came to the United States, they would sing the latest Italian arias, and they would also sing uh, Old Folks at Home or Way Down Upon the Suwannee River. And that overlap was there then just the same as it is now. It's just, we're doing the, you know, and then the Beatles come along and they're still having their biggest hits playing, sing, as we said, singing over a string quartet. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, when the Beatles on Revolver, you know, when, when they whip out the sitars and the tape loops, nobody remembers 
those tracks except the hardcore nuts who love revolver <laughs> what they remember is the hits yeah, which yeah. do not which were not difficult uh-huh. and and but know, somehow they created the expectation of art in a pop realm that only to people who cared i mean that's perhaps. that's what i'm saying yeah, i mean yeah. there are people who want quotation marks art in yeah. a pop realm yeah. and they could find some beatles songs to say that about uh-huh. But those weren't the Beatles' hits. The Beatles' hits were fun. And, you know, some people, a lot of people went down that rabbit hole. You know, the Rolling Stones made their Satanic Majesty's Request, making their art rock album, and it was a piece of shit. And very, very quickly, they regrouped. And I remember that it must have been... When, when did the Stones form? They formed like 62, so I'm probably thinking of their 25th anniversary. Rolling Stone magazine interviewed all five Rolling Stones separately. And all I remember from these interviews was uh, Keith Richards, I guess, yeah, Keith Richards in the middle of the interview saying, you know, I mean, I don't know why you're being so serious. I mean, all we, you know, I mean, we just play music for teenagers to dance to. <laughs> And then they're interviewing Mick Jagger and say, you know, we were interviewing Keith and, you know, he said that, you know, all you're doing is playing music for teenagers to dance to. And Mick says, well, what did you think we were doing? <laughs> um, you know, they had had their moment where they weren't doing that. Yeah. But they regrouped and said, OK, this is what we do. Yeah. Um, I think Jeff and Jack Flash might have been the next again, single. And again, I'm saying think. that's just an aesthetic. Yeah. No, I'm, yeah. I'm talking by now, you know, we're at black and blue. We're in the 70s okay. that I'm yeah. talking about. But. I, and again, I'm not I'm not prizing one aesthetic over the other, but what they're essentially saying is we still want the teenage girls. We don't just want the boys who are smoking dope and listening to Exile on Main Street. Yeah. We understand that if we were the band that did Exile on Main Street, we would not be filling stadiums. We are filling stadiums because <laughs> we're the band that did Jumping Jack Flash and Satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, there's nothing wrong with playing small clubs. The Stones themselves are nostalgic for when they were playing small clubs. But valuing the small club music over the stadium music is an aesthetic. I share it. Yeah. But it's it's an aesthetic. It's just one of many. Probably the most talked about piece of rock journalism I, I, I've heard about in recent years was a piece that ran in, in, in the New York Times, maybe in 2014, was it uh, about... The uh, rockest thing? Yes, Kayla, uh, Kaylee Sena, I think maybe was the name of the... Uh, Kaylee Sena. Yeah. Yeah, um, on rockists. Yeah, basically. Say, yeah. I mean, I... In some ways... This is one of the conversations. It This fits very well with a lot of what I'm saying. I... I don't exactly frame it the same way because because I don't frame it exactly the same way. But but in that article, she talks about sort of rebelling against all the, you know, ideas that have come along with a sort of male-dominated yeah. rock template. Yeah. I mean, the difference is that I'm not talking aesthetics. Yeah. It's if I wanted to talk aesthetics, it would I would just have a different conversation. And it's not what I do. I'm a historian, so I'm not, I'm not, this is, you know, people say this is better, but this other thing is actually better. You know, who cares what I like? <laughs> I, I'm serious. Absolutely. I mean, as a Absolutely. historian, yeah. you know, if I personally would rather listen to Mississippi John Hurt than Leslie Gore, Fine. My sister preferred Leslie Gore, and she had a lot of company, and I was alone in my bedroom. And and the book itself, it's not a book of uh, of uh, examining your aesthetic. It really is a book about nailing down, you know, certain realities of the music business that have been forgotten. I think. Over, Look, over basically, the years. I think that the value of history is understanding how other people in other times and other places have thought, because I think understanding how other people think is a valuable exercise. I I really do. I mean, I think that that's, you know, the huge problem. Many of the huge problems of the world today are caused by the fact that we can all get on Facebook and talk only with people we agree with. I think understanding how other people think 
is worth the trouble, I think. And, and God damn it, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe we should wrap it up there. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for coming out, Elijah. Thanks for having me. That I, was fun. Yeah, I would. I would love to have you back. I think your other your other books have a lot to uh, to uh, unpack Anytime as well. We can talk Robert Johnson and Bob Dylan. That sounds wonderful. Thanks again. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's show. Thanks again to Elijah for coming in to discuss his fascinating book, again titled "How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll: An Alternative History of American Popular Music" from the Oxford University Press. You can find out more about Elijah's fascinating doings at ElijahWald.com. Check out my next film appreciation class at Fleischer Arts Memorial in Philly starting September 9th. It's French directors in the post-new wave. You hear me spinning jazz and beyond at WPRB Princeton Mondays from 11 to 2 over the air and at WPRB.com. Check out 45 previous episodes of Fun to Know through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. And I hope you'll return soon for more Fun to Know. I tell you, so wake up, it's time.